You can go ahead and grab your Bible and open up to Genesis chapter 32. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers up at the front here, they're going to walk towards the back, and you can just slip your hand up in the air. We'll make sure a Bible gets across to you. We'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word as we study it together. And if you don't own a copy of God's Word, just keep this. Keep this Bible, take it home, trust that you'll read it and be encouraged as you do so. I was thinking a little bit this morning, but I... I, I uh, I haven't quoted from J.R.R. Tolkien in a little while, and I firmly believe that every real preacher must frequently quote J.R.R. Tolkien. I'm just kidding. I didn't, notice I didn't say every good preacher. I just said every real preacher. But I, I digress. I, I, I was thinking about this, but J.R.R. Tolkien's book, The Hobbit, many of you may not know this, the, the book The Hobbit actually has a second name. You know what it is? We got real fans here? Come on, somebody shout it out. Yeah, there and back again. It's the, the account, right? If, if you're familiar with the book or you've watched the movie, it's the account of this unlikely journey that is less really about a hobbit going somewhere and doing some things and then coming home and more about a hobbit who leaves as someone but comes home someone very different. When Gandalf shows up to first recruit Bilbo Baggins, he declares these words. He says, I am looking for someone to share in an adventure that I am arranging, and it's very difficult to find anyone. Bilbo responds, and he says this, I should think so in these parts. We are plain, quiet folk and have no use for adventures, nasty, disturbing, uncomfortable things make you late for dinner. In God's providence, they do much more than make you late for dinner. They can make you an entirely different person. This is what we have seen in the life of Jacob, the patriarch, in the book of Genesis. And at the end of Genesis 27, if you were here with us a little while ago, we saw that Jacob had left his home on a journey. But at that point in time, he was fleeing from his brother. He had stolen his brother's birthright and his blessing, and so he was fleeing home, running for his life, as well as looking for a wife. It's been a 20-year adventure, but now he's returning home. He's left one fight with his father-in-law Laban for another fight with his brother Esau. And God has been changing him along this journey over this 20-year span, but what we find out here in Genesis 32 and 33 is that God is not yet finished changing Jacob. And while Jacob is fighting, in one sense, on two fronts, there's another fight that God wants to pick with this man. And I trust you see that God has you on a journey today. Wherever you are in your life, God has you on some kind of a journey through which God is wanting to actually change you. I said this a while back. It is less about you going from point A to point B and more about you becoming person A, transforming, sorry, from person A into person B. God wants to grow you. He wants you to advance, spiritually speaking. And his desire for you is this spiritual growth that is necessary in order to eventually bring you safely home. To receive 
all of the blessings in all of their fullness through Jesus Christ. I want to show you three ways that God fights for your spiritual growth from these chapters today. And the first one is is this. God fights against our fear of man. He fights against our fear of man. And we need to understand right out the gates that fear of man hinders our ability to grow spiritually. We're diving again back into uh, Jacob's life in this cycle of Jacob and Esau. It's coming to a close. And here's what it says, beginning in verse 1. We'll read all the way to verse 21 to start here. It says, Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, thus you shall say to my lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I have sent to tell my, uh, tell my lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you and there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do good to you. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two camps Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me. The mother is with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when he saw my brother meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong, where are you going, and whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are present, sent to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. 20 years, that's how long it's been since he's seen his brother Esau. And here, Jacob is stopped 
waiting to come face to face with his brother, and he just so happens to be in the very same place that he was in chapter 28 when God had revealed himself to him. He is at this place of Bethel, uh, which he named because of the encounter that he had with God. Remember in chapter 28, there he was with only a rock for a pillow, and as he dreamed, God gave him this, this vision, this dream, and he looked and he saw a ladder stretching from heaven to earth, and angels were going up and down on this ladder. The Lord stood at the top. God himself controlling all things, providentially orchestrating not only the events of Jacob's life, but really the affairs of the entire world, nothing outside of the the hands of God, his hands all over everything. And now here he is, and notice that in this same spot, God gives him another divine encounter. But this time, what he sees is a camp. God opens his eyes so that what he can see is that there's not just his own camp with his own people and his own flocks and herds, but there is a spiritual camp right beside him, and it's likely filled with angels, an army of angels like we have just sung about. And I want you to think of the significance of why he is seeing this in this moment. The simple answer is because Jacob is terrified. He's got to go face his brother Esau. They did not leave on good terms. Esau wants to kill him. And these angels, they signify that God would clear the way of Jacob's entrance back into Canaan. And it also confirmed a deeper reality. Jacob's journey wasn't just physical, it was spiritual. God was still with Jacob and was fighting for Jacob. God's grace would fight for him at every turn. That's what God is trying to communicate to him. I am here, Jacob. I am with you, Jacob. I told you, Jacob, that that would be the case. And now you're seeing again that you have no reason to be afraid. I fight for you, Jacob. But Jacob's greatest fight was not external. It wasn't about Laban. It wasn't even about Esau and the 400 men who were apparently coming against him. Jacob's greatest fight was internal. It was a fight with his, his own heart, who he was as an individual, a man who was self-sufficient, who was prideful, He wasn't fully dependent and reliant upon God. He didn't fully surrender himself to God and trust that God was going to do what he said he would do. So as glorious as this second divine encounter was, Jacob here is still fearful. We noted that multiple times in this text. There was a fear in his heart. And honestly, it's very hard to blame him, isn't it? From a human perspective, of course he's going to struggle with some fear when he thinks about what Esau is going to potentially do to him. And by the way, there's a significance to the number 400 men who are with him. That is often the number used to describe a military unit in the Old Testament. And so the the idea would be this, that this guy's on the march, right? Here he is, the general Esau coming against Jacob, and he means to go to war. At least that's the way it appears. Perhaps Esau hears of Jacob coming, and imagine what's going through his mind. 
He he knows that Jacob has stolen his birthright and the blessing. In other words, he knows that the, the promise of this land was supposed to now go to him. Maybe he's thinking, here comes Jacob, and he has amassed a militia of his own, and now he's coming back to conquer the land, to take what I want for myself. It's been 20 years. Either way, it appears that there is going to be a fight And what does fear of man cause Jacob to do? Very simply, it causes him to take matters into his own hands. Did you notice the flow of the text as we read it? The first thing he does is he sends out messengers of his own, just like God had sent messengers to him. Now he sends out messengers to Esau. He's always trying to figure out a way out of his mess. He's always trying to take matters into his own hands. He always thinks that whenever he faces a problem, the first thing he needs to do is come up with some kind of a plan, some kind of a scheme. He needs to figure out how to manipulate things so that he can make his way through unscathed. And every time he does that, it never works out well. But the truth is, we do the same thing, don't we? I mean, how often are we just like Jacob, where where we encounter some kind of a problem? Maybe it's a, a relational problem. Maybe it's just circumstances at work or school or life in general. Maybe we're, we're dealing with financial struggles, and instantly what we do is we get the, the pad of paper out and the pen, and we start scribbling out plans and ideas. How am I going to fix this? What do I need to do next? We can face many difficulties in this life that produce fear and anxiety. We all do. The question is, where do we turn when we face them? And fear of man often manifests or produces a trust in self, a turning to our own devices, our own strength, our own wisdom, our own power. And here's what we need to understand. A prideful self-sufficiency is the enemy of spiritual growth. Prideful self-sufficiency is the enemy of spiritual growth. God, the scriptures tell us, oppose the proud, but he gives grace to who? The humble. So, So in other words, fear of God produces not trust in self, but trust in him, and humble God dependency is the friend of spiritual growth. It is the soil that is ready to receive from the Lord and to bring forth great fruit, a bounty of fruit, a bounty of righteousness, a bounty of good works. But make no mistake about it. It has to be humble God dependence. And so he sends out these lavish gifts He kind of breaks them up and he sends out these lavish gifts. And and by the way, he is an incredibly wealthy man. And the the gifts that he gives, I mean, some have calculated that this this would be in in kind of, uh, you know, our modern day and age, upwards of like $200,000 to $300,000 worth of livestock he is just sending to his brother. Clearly, he's feeling a sense of guilt and shame over what he did to his brother. Clearly, he's trying to atone for his past sins. Clearly, he is trying to appease his brother propitiate his wrath. But his efforts, as shrewd as they might be, are driven primarily at this point by the fear of man, not the fear of God. And God fights against this in our hearts by exposing it. 
Okay, you wanna know like, how does God really begin to fight against the fear of man? He's gonna show you over and over. He's gonna expose your heart to show you that you're a person who's living in, in crippled by fear and anxiety and worry. And if that's dominating your life, it's likely, listen, that you are not fearing God the way you ought to. You are not trusting God the way he calls you to. Instead, you're trusting in self or something else. Jacob's done all that he can think of to do in his own strength. And so, as the popular saying goes, when all else fails, try prayer. And it's interesting because remember, Jacob's, he's growing. He is changing. He is becoming a godlier man. I I think that's very clear as we've studied the text. But there's still this internal battle going on in his heart. And so I, I love this because the prayer that he prays here, it's actually quite a powerful prayer. It is a good prayer. I mean, it's theological. It is, it is based on the promises that God has given to him. By the way, that's why we pray the word of God. That's why we pray the scriptures back to God. Why? Because what we're doing is we're simply declaring to God, God, do what you say you will do. Do what you promised to do. God, I'm, I'm holding fast to what you and only you can do. But what's interesting here, it's not the content of the prayer that's problematic, I think. It's the placement of the prayer in how he has kind of produced this plan. You know if fear of man or fear of God rules your heart, not just by what you pray, but by when you pray. Does that make sense? So, so in other words, if, if, if prayer is an afterthought in your life, right, if it's the last thing you do, it is likely evidence, again, that you just simply don't fear God the way you ought to, and you're ruled more by the fear of man or fear of your circumstances. I suppose you could say it's better late than never, which is true. And so he does pray this, this beautiful prayer But make no mistake about it, the best plans start with prayer, are bathed in prayer, and they end with prayer. Why? It's very simple. Because our prayers don't inform God of anything. I hope you understand that. When you go to God, you're not not bringing him new information. You're not telling him things that he doesn't know. Prayers are not primarily for God. They're not trying to change God. Prayers are primarily for us. They're means by which God is still changing and growing us spiritually. You can think of it like this. Our prayers don't inform God. They simply reorient our hearts. We remind ourselves of what is true. We take our eyes in prayer off of our circumstances and we place them back on the God who is sovereign over our circumstances. We take our eyes off of our own plans and our own power and we put our eyes back on the one whose plans are always better than ours and who has power that is superior, greater than ours. I love what Paul says in Philippians 4 verse 6. He says, do not be anxious about anything but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. This is the way we live in the fear of God. Not in this trembling before him all the time in, in crippled fear, but in humble dependence, believing in who he is and what he can do. He prays here, and it is, by the way, the longest prayer recorded in the book of Genesis. 
It is a powerful prayer and it's instructive for how we need to think about prayer. But I just want to highlight for us simply that prayer should never be a last resort. It should be our first and best option. There's something else that just sticks out here. It's, it's hard to see. Uh, we, we read this in the English, but if you were to look at this in Hebrew, the language that it was written in, uh, there are words that are related and linked, and they don't kind of translate very well one for one, but there's something that Moses, the author of this book, wants us to pay attention to, and, and it's the word in Hebrew, face. This word is going to come up a little bit later in the chapter. It's the word panim. It's going to be the name of the place that uh, Jacob, sorry, Jacob uses this name to name the place he's in after this next episode when he wrestles with God. Here's why. Because he has seen God's face he says. But here in this passage, this, this word face, panim, in the Hebrew, it actually occurs seven times in this passage. It's not going to occur in English seven times, but in the Hebrew it does. In verse 3, in verse 16, and 17, and 20, and 21, and then it's going to show up again in the next section. But I want you to see, look at verse 20. Here he is, he's sending out these gifts. And it says this, it says, And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us, for he thought, I may appease him. Now notice, is there a footnote there? This is a real footnote, not like last week, okay? Real footnote. Uh, if, if you take that footnote, drop down, and here's what it says. Hebrew, it says this, appease his face. And then it says this, with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall, look at this language, see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. Notice the footnote there on the word accept. Drop down in your Bible if you have that footnote. Look at what it says. Hebrew says this. He will lift my face. So the present passed on ahead of him. By the way, that, that word there, that word ahead, it's the same word for face. It's like saying that it passed on ahead of his face. And he himself stayed that night in the camp. You say, well, what's, what are you getting at? Like, okay, face, great, Ian. What's the point? I'm glad you asked. Here's, here's the way this would read. Jacob wants to appease Esau's face. So he sends presents that go ahead of his face so that after I may see his face and maybe he will lift up his face. And the irony is that Jacob is too fearful to face up to his brother, but God is about to come face to face with Jacob. Again, the emphasis is this. Here is a man who is fearful. He is gripped by fear. And he's, he's not thinking about who he ought to fear most in his life. He's looking at his circumstances, and he's looking at his brother, and he's looking about the consequences for his own sin, and he is just wrecked by fear. And God is saying, look, I already showed you that I'm here. I've showed you the, the army, the camp that's with you, and you still can't get your face out of Esau's face. Turn your face. See what he's trying to say? Turn your face and look at my face. The antidote for our fear of man is a greater fear of God. And if we're going to truly face our fears, we must regularly come face to face with God. So what fear is ruling your heart today? What circumstance 
is producing anxiety, worry, what relational turmoil is causing you to lose sleep? Who are you trying to appease, to make happy? What sin are you trying to atone for over and over and over again and you simply can get no peace? Turn your face away from your fears and seek the face of God. Secondly, notice that God fights with our failure to surrender. God fights with our failure to surrender. This is the the second way God fights for our spiritual growth. And in verse 22, we'll read all the way down to 32, we come across this astounding passage. We've, We've referenced it quickly already, but let's read it. It says this, the same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, which again, we've already seen that. It means face of God. Saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Jacob had expected to meet Esau in the promised land, but before he does, God wants to meet with Jacob. And here, Jacob is isolated, he's all alone, and it's dark. And, you know, have you ever been camping out in the middle of Algonquin Park? Is that kind of dark, right? No city glow, no, no light from any source other than the stars and the moon. And so here he can't see, that's the point, he can't see who's come to wrestle with him. He just knows, here he is, maybe he's lying down, and he's, you know, he's just drifting off, and then he feels an arm of a man grab a hold of him. What goes through your mind if you're Jacob? Oh no. Esau's here and he's going to kill me. Or maybe Esau sent somebody to sneak in and find me and kill me before the rest of the the group gets here. Either way, this has got to be a terrifying experience. And I hope you see the irony there. He's trying to put the fear of the Lord into Jacob's heart. And it's fascinating. He, he wrestles with this man, again, not knowing who it is. And, and Jacob must have been crazy strong, okay? He's wrestling with this guy all night long. Anybody here ever wrestle? Like, 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 I'm not, like, maybe you just play around with your kids and you're just gassed after two minutes, right? 
They can, even, in, even in wrestling, like professional wrestling, Olympic level wrestling, they have rounds. And between rounds, you know, professional wrestlers who've been training like their entire lives, they're sitting there, they're off in a corner just trying to get their breath and get ready to get back in the next round. It's exhausting. And here is Jacob, who's got to be a tough dude, and he is just going all night wrestling with this man. It's unbelievable. You're like, well, who, who is this guy he's wrestling with? Well, he says, he says he's wrestled with God. But what exactly does that mean? And, and look, there's a lot of debate about this, and I think there's mystery here. We don't quite know. Some people think that, uh, you know, it's, it's a, a theophany or a Christophany. It's the pre-incarnate Christ. Some people think it's the angel of the Lord. Let me show you what, what Hosea says. Hosea 12, verse 4. I'll put it on the screen for you. Here's how he describes it. It says that he strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. So, so the author, uh, Hosea, the prophet, says that actually this was an angel. So it wasn't actually God himself, necessarily, but it was a representative of God. It was as if, though, it was as if he was literally wrestling with God himself. We can't say for sure, but what we know is that God has shown up to wrestle with Jacob in some way, shape, or form. And let's not miss the point here. God fights Jacob. (laughs) I also want you to pay attention to this. It wasn't Jacob who went to pick the fight with God. It was God who came to pick the fight with Jacob. So why... Why did God do this? Well, here's why. Because throughout his entire life, Jacob had been seizing God's blessing by any means that would work, by his own abilities, his own deception. Remember what his name means. He was too self-sufficient and he was too proud to let the blessing be given to him by God. You know, if, if he didn't think about this, if he didn't steal the blessing and the birthright in the first place, do you realize God would have gotten it to him somehow? He didn't have to try to manipulate things in order to receive what God had already determined to give him before he was even born. He didn't have to go through all this sinful conniving. He had to walk with God and trust him, and God would have made it much easier on him. For 20 years, he's been suffering the consequences for his sin, and then he had to go and meet with Laban and had to be deceived by Laban, and you know he had to have his own game played against him. You have to see for sure that God is wanting to change this man on this journey, and he's willing to use some pretty extreme measures in order to do so, including now coming to him in the middle of the night and picking a fight. In a sense, in Jacob's self-sufficiency and in his pride, Jacob had actually been fighting God long before this encounter. And that's true in your life and mine. That, that whenever we're walking in pride and self-sufficiency, we are actually fighting against God. We're resisting God's authority in our lives. We're resisting God's power. We're resisting God's direction. We're resisting God sitting on the throne of our hearts, and instead, we're knocking him off and saying, thank you very much, God. I'd like to do this my way. I don't really need you. And so God then comes along and he knocks the self-sufficiency out of Jacob. And how stubborn is Jacob? This this all-night fight 
it just it's kind of blows my mind when I think about it. But I think it tells us two things, okay? It tells us two things at least. How stubborn we can be and how patient God is. The fact that God would not simply, in the moment Jacob resisted and fought against him, just a little boop right on the hip in that moment. It's astounding to me. Really, God, you're going to let this guy fight you all night long when you have the power in an instant to cripple this man for the rest of his life. And I simply think it reminds us that we can be so stubborn. We can be so unwilling to change. We can be so stiff-necked, hard-headed, hard-hearted. And think about the message this was for Israel, the people of God, who would have received this. The Exodus generation, they were constantly being rebuked, right, for their stiff necks. You guys, I I rescue you, I deliver you, I help you, I lead you, I guide you, I give you manna from heaven, and you want to go back and eat leeks and onions in Egypt. And over and over and over again, the people of God throughout the history of the word of God, listen, they constantly complain, they grumble, they turn their back, they fight, they resist, and we, we are no different than them. But God is so patient don't you love that? God is so patient. And, and it, it, it gets even better. He can cripple us in an instant, but that's not what we deserve when we fight against God. Do you realize that? What we deserve is to be put to death in an instant. That, that's, that's what God promised would happen all the way at the beginning of Genesis. right? If you rebel against me, if you eat from the, the, the fruit, the fruit of the tree right here in the garden, if you eat from this tree, you will surely die. In other words, if you choose to fight me, you won't win. And what you'll deserve is justice in the form of my wrath. But God is so gracious to not give us what we deserve. He's so kind. He's so, you're like, he's kind, he's kind to only hurt us. And he hurts us in order to help us. He could do so much more, but he chooses only to tap the hip, pop it out of joint. What a great reminder of the grace of God towards sinners. And what a great reminder that if we choose to go wrestle with God, we're not going to win. The only question is this, like how much pain do we need to experience for God to get us to a place of surrender? Okay, when you, when, you, when you fight with God, and when God's fighting with your heart, here's what you need to understand. He's trying to get you to the place of surrender. He's, he's not going to tap, okay? You've got to tap. You've got to be the one who says, I relent, I give up, and God will fight with you, and he will twist your arm, he'll pop out your hip out of joint, and he's doing it all so that you, you break. You, you know, we, we know this, right? We know this just in life. We, we, we've seen that there are people, maybe this has been your experience, the only way you were willing to change was when God brought you to rock bottom. He had to take you right down to the ground. He had to, you know, rip the house down to the studs. He had to break you in some really painful ways. Visibly painful, humiliating, heartbreaking, tragic ways. Why? Why? Because God doesn't doesn't love you? Because God's mad? No, because he loves you so much, he'll do whatever it takes in order to get your attention and to break you from the one thing that's going to destroy you and lead you to the just judgment of God in hell, which is yourself. 
Your unwillingness to surrender to him is God's love. He wants to fight for us, but he must first fight us to get us to the point of surrendering our wills to him. And if we persist in our resistance, God may have to cripple our self-sufficiency to make us trust him more. I'll just, like God's done this to me numerous times. God has had to break me in really painful ways so that I would learn to trust him more. And sadly, I'd like to say the journey's over, right? I'm trying to grow. I'm trying to learn. I don't want the pain. And the, the honest truth is, is God will only give us what we need. And he'll do whatever he has to do to cause us to surrender. So here is this man, Jacob, who could no longer take a step throughout the remainder of his life without limping. I want you to think about this. He was forced to accept that his life and his destiny were in the hands of the one against whom he, it, it was useless to struggle. And this is what God wants for us. He wants us to surrender ourselves to him. There is no spiritual growth. There is no salvation without surrender. You can't be sanctified if you're continuing to live in self-sufficiency. You must get to this place of humble, broken surrender before him so that he can begin to build you back up. This is the heart of the gospel. And if you're here today, first, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you know, you know, the reason is likely because you just have never gotten yourself to this place of surrender. You just become, you're just unwilling to give up control. And what God has for you today is simply say, listen, I want to save you, and then I want to grow you. I, I want to take you as you are and then change you and transform you into the likeness of my son. But in order to do that, you have to humble yourself. You have to bow the knee to Jesus. You have to submit yourself, surrender your life to him. You have to declare that he is Lord, that he is God, that he is king of the universe. You have to believe that he came from heaven to earth. He has all power and all authority, but he left the throne room of heaven in order to come to this earth and rescue you from your sin of selfishness and self-sufficiency. And he did so by dying in your place, by taking the judgment you deserved. God wants to break you down in order to bless you. A.W. Tozer wrote many years ago, he said, it is doubtful that God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. And I think that's exactly what we see with Jacob. And it's what God wants us to embrace in our own lives. And he changes his name. Isn't this amazing? He changes his name from Jacob to Israel. But, but do you want to, did you notice he says, he says, what's your name? I want you to think about this for a minute. He, what's your name? Why does he do this? He wants Jacob to say one last time who he really is. He wants to break him down to the point where he goes, I'm Jacob. I'm deceiver. I'm the sinner. I'm the heel grabber. I'm the supplanter. And it's only then, after he acknowledges who he really is, that God changes his name to Israel. It's powerful. And the name Israel means God fights. This perpetual reminder that God would fight with him in order to fight for him. 
And as God came to Jacob and gave him this new name, so listen, if you're a Christian today, if you're in Christ today, God has come to us and given us this name, Christian. He has given us the very name of Christ. It's where we find our identity. We are in Christ. Our God, it reminds us, does it not? Every time you say the name Christian, you want to remind you of, our God fought the greatest battle of all in order to rescue us from our sin. Our God went to the death with Satan himself at the cross. Our God fought with his own blood. Our God fought and his body was broken. Our God fought for us. And our God, listen, he walked out of the grave. He was victorious over sin and death. Our God won and we win in him. That's what it means to be a Christian. We live in victory. We live because he fought for us. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. And church, listen, a new name is not only a privilege, but a responsibility to live up to. Paul writes these words in Ephesians 4.24. says, clothe yourselves with the new self, created according to the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You see, God wants to give you a new name, a new identity, and then God wants to continue to change you and grow you and transform you into the very person he's already made you. Not defined by your sin, but by your Savior. We now pursue a life of sanctification, which is the ultimate evidence of our surrender. Finally, God fights for our faith in him. We'll read all of chapter 33, make a couple comments. It says, and Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph, last of all. Interesting that Joseph is the only child named. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and the children, he said, who are these with you? Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near and they and their children and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near and they bowed down. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. And then Esau said, let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. 
Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, and at the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, Leave me, or let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, but Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram. And he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. The encounter was a transforming event. But Jacob still had a long way to go. And it's difficult to make sense of what's happening in, in this text, and, and some are really split. Many commentators are split. Is, is Jacob kind of reverting back to his old ways? Is he trying to deceive his brother? Is he trying to manipulate or bribe his brother? I think it's more positive than that. I think Jacob is showing evidence that, that he is a new man. And I don't, I don't know whether the, the wrestling with God was a conversion experience or not. Uh, I'm not sure it really matters. I just think that that encounter radically changed who he was. And here, one way to, to kind of see this spiritual progress is, is in how he approaches Esau this time. I, I think we see here there is certainly a measure of deference, but there is no longer any fear. He's still giving gifts, and he's, you know, they go through this little, I think, cultural kind of, like, you know, that bartering, like, no, no, please, what, what would it cost for my piece of land but 100 pieces of silver? You know, it's that, I think what they're doing here is very cultural, but at the same time, I think what we see is that here, Jacob no longer fears Esau. He has feared God, and he is expressing all that God has graciously done for him. There's no sense in which he is declaring that he's done anything at all. There's no hint of self-sufficiency in his language. All of his flocks, all of his herds, all of his family, look what the Lord has graciously provided. The Lord has blessed me. And surely there's a bit of sting in those words, is there not? Blessing? like the one you stole from me? And perhaps what, what Jacob is doing is he's simply saying, I recognize that I was in the wrong. What I did to you was wrong. And God has blessed me in spite of my sin. And here, I want to give to you out of what God has given to me. I, I want to bless you for what I actually wrongly stole from you, even though God has graciously given it to me. I think the sense here is that if he could wrestle with God and walk away, he now knew he had nothing to fear from Esau. And notice this time as well, he's not sending everybody else in front of him like he was before. Before, it was as if he was using everybody else as a shield. Now, he's marching out in front of them and I think what he's acknowledging is this. I have nothing to fear. I, I, I have the God of angel armies with me. I don't need to fear you anymore. He fears God. 
And his faith in him allows him to face his fears. Did you catch verse 10? The connection, I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. You see, what is he, what is he saying there? Here's what I think he's saying. I have seen the face of God and been accepted by him. And because I have been accepted by him, I have nothing to fear. I am seeing your face and you accept me, but that's only a result of the fact that God is with me and has accepted me. Sometimes things are really hard. This is, this is not to deny that we don't face difficult things, difficult situations. Sometimes the bad things really are bad. Sometimes uh, wicked people really are wicked. Sometimes those are very real. But when we look to God and seek his face, we will find what Lamentation says is true, that his mercies really are new every single morning. Amen? There is this reunion and this restitution made. I know I wronged you, but let me give back to you. And there's one more maybe subtle indication that Jacob is a new man. You notice that Esau wants him to come back with him. It's almost like, hey, I'll lead you. I'll give you protection. But remember, Jacob and Esau are of two fundamentally different lines. Jacob is the chosen promised line, the offspring of Abraham, and Esau is not. He is part of the seed of the serpent. And so by Jacob not going with him, he is making a separation, and he is saying, listen, I'm not supposed to mingle with the seed of the serpent, with all due respect, right? We know what happens when the people of God intermingle with the seed of the serpent, with the nations who worship pagan gods. They never pull the pagan nations away from their false gods to worship the one true and living God. What happens is always the reverse. The people of God get pulled into idolatry, Every time. And so by making this this separation, I think he is declaring, I think Moses is making clear, this is a new man. He knows that he needs to stay faithful to God because God has been faithful to him. And this passage is indicating that God has been faithful to fulfill every promise that he made. It's reminding us that we can place our faith in him and he will not disappoint. He will not let us down. He will never leave us or forsake us. And I think to fully appreciate this as we close this off here, I think we have to see the bigger picture. So let me just take a quick moment to put a bow on this for us. This is the conclusion of a 20-year journey. And one way to track this, this journey or to map it out is to pay attention to the place names that Jacob gives at certain points along the journey. So just bear with me for just a moment. There are four place names given from chapter 28 all the way here to chapter 33. The first one in 28:19 is Bethel. We already looked at that. That's the place where he saw again the angels coming up and down. Bethel, house of God. Surely God is in this place. The second name is in chapter 32, verse 2. It's Mahanaim, and that's, that's where he said, um, that, that means two camps. That's where God, again, revealed himself, and he showed, here I am with you. There, there is a camp of angels. I'm present with you. You have nothing to fear. And the third is in 32, verse 30, where we've just read, it says Peniel. And, and he names it that because it means this, for I've seen the face of God. It means face of God. 
And then there's a fourth name given in chapter 33 right here in verse 17, and that's the name Succoth. And, and that, that name means booths. You have a footnote there maybe that tells you that. But I want you to see that the, the first three names, there's some consistency. They're all named after this encounter with God, and one of these things is not like the other. You get, you get like, okay, God is here, God is here, God is here, booths. Why is there this shift? It seems so anticlimactic, right? That's not a great way to end the story, Moses. But let me ask you a question. Why do you build booths? You see, he'd made his way back. Why else build a house in shelters except that you have made it to your destination, that your journey has come to an end? You see, this represents home, This is what God promised me. This is what God said he would do. And your places along the way in this earthly pilgrimage can be marked out in many of the same ways. God is with me. God is with me. God is with me. And then one day, finally, listen, home. Home. There's one final name given in verse 20. Not of a place, but an altar. He buys a piece of land like Abraham Why? Remember why Abraham bought it? It signified the the future possession of the land. And here it's doing the same thing. And there, he builds an altar. Just like his father Isaac did. Just like Abraham. And he names the altar El Elohei Israel. And it's a reminder of chapter 28, verse 20, when he had that first encounter with God and he made a vow to God saying, God, if you do all these things you promised to do, I will be yours. You will be my God. I will give myself over to you entirely. And here what he's declaring is this. He's made good on his promise. God has been faithful. The the name there means God, the God of Israel. He uses his new name as if to say, I have changed, but God has remained the same. This is the life of faith. He he doesn't yet have everything he one day will receive. They're not yet in the, the promised land. They're not yet fully there as the people of God. But we know what the author of Hebrews tells us, that that promised land is a type of the heavenly city that's yet to come. It's pointing all of us who are in Christ today forward to a new heavens and a new earth, a new Jerusalem. And throughout the Bible, we have these themes of exile and exodus, of banishment and return. And the question that's being asked repeatedly is this, how do we get back to our heavenly home? And here, Jacob was sent out. Israel returned. And the God of promise has been there fighting for his spiritual growth every step of the way. If you are in Christ today as a member of the new covenant, he's doing the very same thing for you. All of us on a journey can relate with various parts of Jacob's journey here. Maybe here today, you're on a run. Maybe here today, you're running because of your own sin and the consequences of it. Maybe you have unreconciled relationships. There's conflict in your life. There's family drama. Maybe you have sorrows and anxiety and fears. Maybe you're wrestling with God. Fear him, the Bible says. Surrender to him and walk by faith in him, and he will grow you on this journey. And there's really, really good news. Be assured of this. Wherever you are, wherever you go, God is with you, and God is fighting for you, and he knows how to bring you safely home. Let's pray. 
Father, we love you. And we thank you that you are the God who is with us. We thank you that you love us, that you love us so much that you sent your son to die for us. We thank you that you have been faithful to every promise you have ever made. We praise you that all of your promises find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. We thank you that we know you, the faithful, covenant-keeping God, and that you have brought us into the new covenant by the blood of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray now that you would receive our praise. May it be pleasing to you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.